the sovereign God who is revealed in the Old Testament, in the Bible, if you will, the God who is confessed in the Christian tradition. That this God is no longer present. This kind of atheism is not born of the intellect. It is born of the will. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Instant. I'm still taking a break from the series of psychological lectures I'm conducting called Seinfraga. Instead, now to address the more direct and pressing question, what is The Instant? Why did I choose that name? And what spiritual significance does it carry? Now, so for those of you that are new to the blog and the podcast especially, I haven't always been called The Instant, but instead for just well under 10 years did I carry the name Hellenistic Christendom. So Hellenistic Christendom was a blog that I, for the longest time, considered to be a, quote, quote, conceptual ministry. A nice little phrase I came up with. But it initially started out as a written blog on WordPress, where I primarily wrote about apologetics, arguments for God's existence, the problem of evil, sharing quotes from my favorite books, and so on and so forth. Over time, I tried to make the blog into what I called, again, a conceptual ministry in order to try and broaden the scope of the page's intentions. So I suppose by conceptual ministry, I don't mean to say that I consider Christianity, first and foremost, to be Hellenistic per se, but rather that there was an underlying attitude about Christianity, which suggested that it was uniquely integrative and not just a conceptual island all of its own. Now, Hellenistic, mind you, for those that aren't so familiar, is just a phrase that refers more so to the spread of Greek culture to non-Greek culture. It applies, again, more generally to anything Greek, but the Hellenistic period was more of my historical focus um, as to its particular spread within Christianity. But I think we especially see such a spread throughout the early history of Christendom when we see the integration of Gentiles into the New Covenant specifically. Notice in John's Gospel the particular wording which Pilate identified with Jesus on the cross. Verse 19 in chapter 19 reads, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Augustine, the early church father, once wrote with respect to that inscription, O ineffable working of divine power, even in the hearts of ignorant men, did not some hidden voice sound from within, and, if we may say so, with clamorous silence, saying to Pilate in the prophetic words of the psalm, Alter not the inscription of the title. Pilate wrote what he wrote because our Lord said what he said. Moreover, Augustine wrote, and I'm paraphrasing now, that it was written in Hebrew so that it might address the Jews, God's chosen people. It was written in Greek so that it might address the covenant's inclusion of the Gentiles. And it was finally written in Latin so that it might address Rome, or that is, moreover, the rest of the world. So the idea I wanted to get across was more specifically that philosophy was not mutually exclusive from theology. Moreover, that the two don't contradict one another, nor are they incompatible by any means. And actually, I think if you look at Paul's preaching to the philosophers at Athens in Acts 17, you'll notice that he is not refuting their arguments per se, although we do read that he reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons, so I'm sure there were some arguments exchanged. But I think in another sense, he was actually fulfilling their arguments, if you will. 
Verse 22 in chapter 17 reads, for example, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And so I think from here we find this unique procedure from Paul to actually quote various Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, as well as poets such as Seneca and Aratus. This procedure was precisely inspiring for me because there's a way in which the confusion of the world isn't necessarily the spouting of falsehoods per se, but rather I think Paul was able to show that they sometimes can be seen as glimpses of the dim light that is already available to their natural reason. Paul, most of all, knows that what these individuals need is not so much knowledge in the direct sense, but something of a spiritual push in an indirect sense. Knowledge, education, and study is required for the former, while wisdom, humility, and love is required for the latter. So, anyway, I started to notice that over time, Hellenistic Christendom, just as a name, was first and foremost not so easy to pronounce, more so for those individuals who weren't familiar with Hellenism, you know, history, philosophy, or theology. And so that's, of course, a problem uh, when a general audience can't quite even pronounce what your blog is called. But coupled this with the fact that my focus on the blog wasn't directly upon Hellenism itself, um, I later decided after that, since I started, again, Hellenistic Christendom was just all over the place for quite some time, but I eventually decided that I needed to rebrand and create an altogether different social presence. And so I think from the time of my making this episode, it's been some six months now since I've made the transition from Hellenistic Christendom to the instant. So for those of you that are watching those earlier episodes, you'll kind of see me introduce, you know, hello and welcome to Hellenistic Christendom. Anyway, because that's not the case anymore. We are now called the instant. So the long story short, of course, was that the instant was nice because it was simple, easy to remember. And of course, it was a direct homage to my favorite philosopher, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, which I'm sure everyone's... Oh, that scared me. My music just turned on. Hey, Google, stop. Okay, I'm not going to edit that out because I don't feel like doing that. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I'm sure everyone's probably tired of hearing me talk about Soren Kierkegaard, but yes, the instant is a direct homage to him. Um, but rather than get into the backstory behind the blog itself, I'm going to instead um, talk about the conceptual bulk of of what the instant entails. So what is the instant and how does it pertain to Kierkegaard? So I'm going to give two short answers to that question, and then I'm just going to explain them, and that's going to be the episode today. But one answer is going to be for the philosophically minded, and the other is going to be for the non-philosophically minded. So for the philosophically minded, if you're familiar with the writings of Thomas Aquinas, you probably might be familiar already with his prominence in the Catholic intellectual tradition as being known as the great synthesizer. Aquinas unites the nucleus, as it were, of the Platonic doctrine of transcendence with the Aristotelian doctrine regarding the act of eminence. However, Kierkegaard could be seen as an analogous great synthesizer, instead now of Protestant thought. If Aquinas could be seen as a 
marrier of, say, more macrocosmic systems, creator and creation, nature and grace, philosophy and theology, Kierkegaard could likewise be seen as a marrier of microcosmic systems, more especially the single, solitary individual with God. So, otherwise, for the non-philosophically minded here, um, I think Kierkegaard could be seen as a unique herald of truth. He looks to Plato and Aristotle and takes what is best, or most fitting, for the kingdom, all the while leaving what is false, or perhaps, of course, what he takes to be most unfitting for the kingdom. So, when we are examining, then, such a concept as the instant, or otherwise called the moment in his writings, uh, we are looking to something both within the doctrines of Plato and Aristotle. And there's a few texts from Kierkegaard's corpus where I'm actually going to bounce between a focus on one over the other. But I think one can almost, just as a side point, interestingly see a preoccupation with Plato in the early years of Kierkegaard's writings, more especially from 1844 earlier. And then you can see an altogether new or differing preoccupation with Aristotle in his later years. So now referring to 1844 onward, since I think there's a particular entry in Kierkegaard's journals where he didn't admit to reading a lick of Aristotle until about 1843 or 44 or so. Uh, there was a particular edition of De Anima that was um, translated by Friedrich Trendelenburg. Um, and so Kierkegaard got his hands on that copy, loved it. And so I think you can see a kind of Aristotelian influence in the later Kierkegaard. But anyway, I digress. So let's look at the this notion of the moment or the instant, at least as it appears in Kierkegaard's philosophical fragments. Now this appeared particularly in 1844, so we're still within the Platonic range of Kierkegaard's thought. And now, specifically, the appearance of the moment in this work is something that takes something of an exemplified form. It doesn't really have the character of, uh, of a work in abstract metaphysics per se, but he's doing something more poetic or more artistic through this introduction of the moment. Um... And more specifically, he's working through this concept in the form of a kind of Socratic demonstration, rather than, as I said, offering any metaphysical explanation as to its meaning. So, we're just gonna, I'm going to kind of walk through this argument and then go over the conceptual details with you afterwards. Now, Kierkegaard begins the philosophical fragments by asking the question, can the truth be learned? This is a start, um, which is similar, but altogether different. Um, I said that weird. The question, can the truth be learned? This is to start from a similar but altogether different point of departure than Socrates, who asked the question first of whether virtue can be taught. Now, insofar as the truth can be learned, there is an assumption that one does not begin in the truth. This is because it is learned, and moreover, it is sought. Hence, Kierkegaard postulates a similar Socratic problem. A person cannot seek what he does not know, and he cannot seek what he does know. For if he already knows it, then he cannot reasonably be said to be seeking it. Moreover, if he does not know it, then he cannot begin to seek what he doesn't already know. Now, Socrates' solution to this problem was to suggest that all knowledge is recollection, or anamnesis in Greek, which is where we get our word amnesia from. Now, this in turn was one of Socrates' arguments for the nature of the soul, or particularly for the immortality of the soul. Now, in the dialogue Meno, Socrates says, All nature referring to human nature, is akin. And the soul has learned everything, so that when a man has recalled a single piece of knowledge, learned it in ordinary language, there is no reason why he should not find out all the rest, if he keeps a stout heart and does not grow weary of the search. For seeking and learning are in fact nothing but 
recollection. Hence, it was for this reason why Socrates could not in the strict sense be called a teacher, since this knowledge by recollection is something only developed within the individual life. Hence, Socrates is not so much a teacher as he is a questioner. This is why Socrates is moreover so often called a philosophical midwife, since he does not give birth to ideas, but only assist in the labor pains of the birthing process. It is only the God which gives birth to truth, says Socrates. Now, the consequence of this view is to suggest that according to Socrates, truth is never introduced to man, but is always already within him. Now, proceeding from those similar Socratic points, Kierkegaard makes this interesting claim. Any point of departure in time is eo ipso something accidental, a vanishing point, an occasion. Now, first, I actually think it's worth putting into our minds the word dialectic at this point. Now, dialectic was a way for the ancient Greeks to describe a kind of reasoning process, which meant arrival at the truth through a kind of question and answer, question and answer sequence. The point of departure that Kierkegaard is referring to has to do with the movement one takes along this dialectical process. However, whenever the inquiry is to take off, whenever the point of departure is to begin, this is only an occasion in the dialectical process. The truth sought is technically already truth obtained. At whatever point this takes place in time, it is merely accidental or an occasion all the while throughout all eternity, or that is to say, absolutely, does the soul possess the knowledge of all things. Summarily then, the teacher's relation to the student is not something essential, but accidental. This means that the teacher is only an occasion for the truth to be learned. Socratically speaking, every human being is himself the midpoint, and the whole world focuses only on him, because his self-knowledge is God-knowledge. Now, this isn't so much a vague point about a pagan spirituality, although, don't be mistaken, it certainly is a pagan spirituality. Uh, but the claim shouldn't be taken more specifically as a kind of pantheism, whereby I and God are ontologically identical, or that we are one. The suggestion from Socrates is that, in referring to that which is divine about human nature, it is man's absolute relation to the truth, or that is to say, participation in the ultimate good itself. However from, however, from Kierkegaard's perspective, this temporal point of departure is really a nothing. Because the same moment that I discover that I have known the truth from eternity without knowing it, in that same instant, that moment is hidden in the eternal, assimilated in such a way that I, so to speak, still cannot find it even if I were to look for it. Because there is no here and no there, but only in everywhere and nowhere. So in other words, even the very moment that one comes to understand that they've really known the truth from all eternity, this moment itself would be something hidden in the eternal. Hence, the individual could never set about finding that moment, even if he were to look for it. Now this view of Socratic truth, according to Kierkegaard anyway, it really paralyzes the learner. Since the moment, as well as the point of departure to the moment, is really just a vapor that is a nothing, itself hidden within the vast expanse of the eternal. Not only does the moment of truth become a vapor, but so too does the individual personality become a vapor, 
since recollection consists in one becoming infinitely less and less, to the point of a nothing who in turn knows nothing. And we are easy then here to remember the famous Socratic dictum on behalf of Kierkegaard's charge, of course, that I know that I know nothing. So likewise did Socrates too become nothing. Now, the turning point of the argument, Kierkegaard's solution, if you will, is that he tries to maintain the similar, a similar situation but provide a different understanding. Now, in order for the moment, says Kierkegaard, to not merely be a vapor or a nothing, but instead in order for the moment of learning the truth to have decisive significance, which means to prompt one towards action, towards act, there must be no time in which I will be able to forget it, neither in time nor in eternity. So let's then return to our initial question. How is one able to seek the truth? The Socratic answer was to annul the disjunction altogether from truth and untruth, since man fundamentally had the truth within him. Kierkegaard attempted to show what exactly are the consequences of that annulment, which doesn't result in decisive significance. Indeed, this conception of the moment undercuts the possibility of decisive significance altogether, since the dialectic is forever imminently occurring within time, never ceasing, because one so forgets what one has known throughout all eternity, and hence must incessantly recollect it. How are we to bring about decisive significance then? Well, if the moment is to be decisively significant, then the seeker up until that moment must not have possessed the truth, not even in the form of ignorance, since this would result here to the Socratic view of the moment. Indeed, in Kierkegaard's view, the learner must not even be a seeker. This is the way we have to state the difficulty if we do not want to explain it Socratically, says Kierkegaard. Moreover, the learner must be defined as being outside the truth, not coming toward it, but indeed going away from it. Or otherwise, the learner could simply be defined, of course, given that understanding, as untruth. How, then, is he to be reminded or what could be the use of reminding him of what he has not known, and consequently cannot call to mind? So this is the question by which now we are proceeding further in this dialectic. Kierkegaard then moves more precisely to the quality and character of the teacher. Now, if the learner is to obtain the truth, the teacher must bring it to him. But not only that. Along with it, he must provide him with the condition of understanding it. For if the learner were himself the condition for understanding the truth, then he merely needs to recollect it, because the condition for understanding the truth is like being able to ask about it. The condition and the question contain, contain the condition and the answer. But the one who gives not only the learner the truth, but provides the condition is not a teacher. I'm going to actually read here um, some different passages from the philosophical fragments that kind of proceed um, in this argument. Let's see. Okay, we're going to begin here. But the one who not only gives the learner the truth, but provides the condition is not a teacher. Ultimately, all instruction depends on the presence of the condition. If it is lacking, then a teacher is capable of nothing. Because in the second sense, the teacher, before beginning to teach, must transform, not reform, the learner. But no human being is capable of doing this. If it is to take place, it must be done by the God himself. Now, inasmuch as the learner exists, he is indeed created, and accordingly, 
God must have given him the condition for understanding the truth. But insofar as the moment is to have decisive significance, he must lack the condition, consequently be deprived of it. This cannot have been due to an act of the God, for this is a contradiction, nor to an accident. It must therefore have been due to himself. If he could have lost the condition in such a way that it was not due to himself, and if he could be in this state of loss without its being due to himself, then he would have possessed the condition only accidentally, which is a contradiction. The untruth, then, is not merely outside the truth, but is polemical against the truth, which is expressed by saying that he himself has forfeited and is forfeiting the condition. So then Kierkegaard says, The teacher, then, is the God himself, who, acting as the occasion, prompts the learner to be reminded that he is in untruth, and it is that through his own fault. But this state, to be untruth, and to be that through one's own fault, what can we call it? Let us call it sin. The teacher, then, is the God, who gives the condition and gives the truth. Now, what should we call such a teacher? For we surely do agree that we have gone far beyond the definition of a teacher. Let us call him a savior. For he does indeed save the learner from unfreedom, saves him from himself. Let us call him a deliverer. For he does indeed deliver the person who has imprisoned himself. And no one is so dreadfully imprisoned, and no captivity is so impossible to break out of, as that in which the individual holds himself captive. And yet, even this does not say enough. For by his unfreedom, he had become indeed guilty of something. And if that teacher gives him the condition and the truth, then he is, of course, a reconciler, who takes away the wrath that lay over the incurred guilt. A teacher such as that, the learner will never be able to forget, because at that very moment, he would sink down into himself again, just as the person did who once possessed the condition, and then, by forgetting that God is, sank into unfreedom. If they were to meet in another life, that teacher would again be able to give the condition to the person who had not received it. But he would be quite different for the person who had received it. Even when the learner has most fully put on the condition and then by doing so has become immersed in the truth, he can still never forget that the teacher or allow himself to disappear Socratically, which is still far more profound. And then finally, I'll finish here. And now the moment. A moment such as this is unique. To be sure, it is short and temporal. As the moment is, it is passing. As the moment is, past. As the moment is in the next moment, and yet it's decisive, and yet it is filled with the eternal. A moment such as this must have a special name. Let us call it the fullness of time. Okay, and the passage actually really goes on for some time. It really is a beautiful argument. You know, he goes on to say things like, um, you know, the person who comes to this knowledge of the truth is no longer um, of similar quality or really a, a, the same kind of person, but rather they're a new person altogether. What shall we call this change in the person? Well, he calls it conversion. Um, then he talks about the learner coming to an understanding of his being in the truth, and there's a kind of sorrow that takes place. Well, what do we call this sorrow? We call it repentance. And he goes on and so on and so forth. Um, but you can see how Kierkegaard moves through an altogether different kind of dialectic from that of Socrates. This dialectic has often been called an existential dialectic in that it involves the existence of a solitary individual coming to be itself before God. 
The Socratic and the existential dialectic do have their respective differences, although they do agree on one fundamental starting point. We cannot remain as we are. Another place in a journal entry where Kierkegaard outlines a difference between the Socratic and existential dialectic, he says, Whereas in Socratic thought, recollection became the proof for the immortality of the soul. Forgetting will now be the beginning of the soul's eternal happiness. Whereas Socrates had eternity behind him, which Kierkegaard is referring here to the pre-existence of the soul. In the second case, one has eternity ahead. So now referring to salvation under Christianity. So hence for me, the inspiration was moreover this moment, right? That instantaneous event of change where one comes to a knowledge of the truth. This moment is not something past or future, but is eternally present. Indeed, the moment is the eternal, or as Kierkegaard says, referring to Galatians 4, the fullness of time. So this moves me now just to um, some comments um, in Kierkegaard's discussion of the moment in the concept of anxiety. So that that dialectic that we examined in the philosophical fragments was kind of an exposition of the moment, in an, and again, in a, in a exemplified form, in a demonstrative form. But now we're going to look under the philosophical hood, of, hood, as it were, to see, again, the, the metaphysical details as to what the moment or the instant is. Now, in the concept of anxiety, particularly Kierkegaard expounds on a conception of time, which suggests that in abstract thought, time and space are completely identical. Whatever is extended in time is likewise extended in space as well. And this identification between space and time for Kierkegaard both obtains in abstraction as well as in representation, or, or whenever we try to make something in time or something in space as an example whenever we try to represent something. Now, this similar identification holds true for a conception of God's omnipresence. God's infinite extension over time, that is God's eternality, is likewise an infinite extension over space. We read in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The present then for Kierkegaard is not so much a temporal concept as it is something, as he says, infinitely lacking in content. Or in other words, he says, it's the infinitely vanishing. Once the present is posited, one can see how quickly the distinction arises between the common temporal other categories, such as past and future. The eternal then is the present. Now in abstract thought, the eternal is present in terms of an annulled succession, or in a canceled succession, if you will, um, whereas time is the succession that passes by, right? However, whatever we represent to ourselves, um, if it be something particular, right, it is a going on that never moves from the spot, as it were. Since our powers of representation, at least for our powers of representation, the eternal is the infinitely contentful present. The instant, then, according to Kierkegaard, signifies the present as something that has no past and no future. For it is just in this understanding that the infinite, that the, excuse me, the imperfections of a sensuous life lie. A sensual life is only concerned with the gratification of the finite instant, divorcing itself from past guilts and future consequences. The eternal as instant, however, which also signifies the present, and likewise has no past or future, 
is instead the perfection of the eternal. Now, concluding with these thoughts and more, Kierkegaard writes, The instant is a metaphor, and in that regard, not so good to deal with. But it is a beautiful word to take heed of. Nothing is as swift as a twinkling of the eye, and yet it is commensurable with the content of the eternal. Now, Kierkegaard is actually borrowing this language as an allusion to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, that the world will perish in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. The instant, then, is just another kind of metaphorical reference for the eternal. It is precisely that moment wherein one is reborn again within the eternal, becoming, that is, a new person, and thereby a follower of Jesus Christ. Despite, of course, all of the conceptual tracks which are laid down for the train of understanding in these contrite philosophical topics, the ultimate goal is to push the solitary individual to the point of a passionate inward deepening. It doesn't matter so much as to a rigorous intellectual clarification to these philosophical metaphysical details, because one can still go out in the world and function much more simply despite these clarifications. I think my goal then throughout this blog is to concentrate on all means, resources, skills, and talents required to foster ripe soil for the individual soul to blossom. Although, of course, this work is ultimately accomplished through the grace of God alone, working in the individual life. And so, yeah. Well, there you have it. That's, again, very simple, very easy, just talking about the conceptual details behind what the instant is and why I've chosen it for my blog. I think it's easy to remember um, and spiritually significant concept, which when communicated rightly, uh, can certainly foster that push for inward deepening that I was talking about earlier. But of course, I think that's given the right personality type and other reasonable circumstances considered. Um, Because, yeah, um, Kierkegaard, I think if you read the concept of anxiety in the fragments, you'll see that there's a philosophical preoccupation, but there's an underlying spiritual motivation or an underlying gospel presentation, moreover, such that people who are deluding themselves and thinking that they're involved in a dialectical process or in a mere process of reasoning. Kierkegaard is more concerned with a process of reasoning that prompts one to a moment of decisive significance, prompting one towards action. Kierkegaard is not so much concerned with knowledge for knowledge's sake, but knowledge for the sake of action, knowledge for the sake of passionate action. And of course, I think that's really his goal is to make us passionate. And however, our skills and our talents could be oriented towards that end, um, I think we should apply all means as necessary. So, yeah, that's what the instant is, and that's what it means. Um, If that was difficult to explain, please feel free to reach out and ask questions. My inbox is always open and welcome, even though I'm not the best with direct messages and questions of the like. Um, But I like to receive them, because it tells me you're listening. So, God bless you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day or night, wherever you are. Please be sure to follow the blog, The Instant, wherever it is available, such as on WordPress, Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, and some other places that I'm probably forgetting. But yeah, thank you so much. God bless you and have a wonderful day or night.